Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, as some of you are still making your way there, just by way of introduction, you know, a story is told of a father who had two sons. One of his sons was an optimist, and the other one was a pessimist. The, uh, the pessimist just complained all the time. Nothing went right for this kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, he just was never happy. Uh, that was him. The optimist, man, completely the opposite. He just, he was always finding the silver lining. He was always looking for, you know, something to be happy about. And so, uh, finally one day, uh, you know, this dad thinks, well, you know what, I'm going to figure out if I can get my pessimistic son to react optimistically, and if I can get my optimistic son to react pessimistically, and so he sets them up. And so he sets up these two rooms, and, uh, and in the one room, he fills it with horse manure, and in the other room, he, he puts uh, a, all brand new toys in there. And so he, he puts the, the pessimistic son into the room with all of, with, with all of these these brand new toys, and he puts the optimistic son into this room with the horse manure. And so he goes in, he starts with the pessimist, and there he is, he's got his arms folded, he's got a scowl on his face, and, uh, and an ocean of brand new toys, and yet the kid basically, you know, one right after another, I don't like that one, I don't like this color, I wanted that, I couldn't get that package open, whatever it was, he just couldn't be happy. Well, he goes into the, the room with the horse manure, and the kid's got a smile from ear to ear, and he's digging like crazy. And he's like, what's going on? He says, with all this horse manure, there's a pony in here somewhere. I know it. <laughs> it's been said, a pessimist can hardly wait for the future so that he can look back on it with regret. And uh, that is so funny, you know, just the way you go. I, I tell you that by way of introduction, because last week we, kind of, we started looking at... at Paul's service, the Apostle Paul, his service to Jesus Christ. And, and we saw that he's committed, he's a committed man to the cause of Christ. And, and we focused on the dynamics of that. Not, not just the idea that Paul served, but how he served. And, and trying to glean, trying to take some lessons of how Paul served, it's, it's, it's very uh, informative for us, very helpful for us to be able to say, here's a guy... Who, who went through incredible hardship, who went through incredible trials, and, and, you know, and indeed, he writes this epistle sitting in prison. And yet the whole first half of this letter, this epistle that he writes to the Ephesians, sitting in prison, really, you know, at, at, at facing the death penalty, ultimately, and, and yet the whole first half of this letter, he's talking about all the blessings that we have in Christ. And, and just this incredible pattern, <coughs> excuse me, that you see in the Apostle Paul's life. Over and over again, here's a guy, you know, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, in Acts chapter 20, he goes through, he talks about the beatings and the lashings and the stoning and the shipwreck and the, the peril, the hunger, the nakedness, the, the famine. Sounds like a Delta flight I had one time. But anyway, he, he goes on, he's talking about all the stuff that he goes through. And, and, and yet he concludes this when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, just leave that up there for a minute and, and look at that. He says, that I may finish my race with joy. 
Now, now that blows my mind. I mean, I joke about, you know, the Delta flight, but really, truly, how many of us have been in a position like that where we, you know, let's use the flight. You get on a bad flight, you get bad service, or you go out to dinner, you get bad service, or you have some sort of, you know, inconveniences. We lose our joy like that, don't we? And, and Paul, yet he's talking about everything that he's been through, and I've been in the open ocean, and I've been beaten and scourged and stoned and left for dead, and, 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 but none of these things are going to move me, man. I want to finish my race. And most of us, that would be where the, where the, the period goes right there. You know, well, I just want to finish my race. I'm just hanging on. No, he says, I want to finish my race with joy. And for so many of us, man, joy went out the window months ago, years ago, decades ago. It's like, you know, I'm whatever. I'm overjoyed. Yeah, I'm done with joy. Just let me finish this thing, man. Paul says, no, you can finish the race with joy. That's what I'm going to do. I want to finish this race with joy. And so here in Ephesians 3, we've taken note that Paul did live faithfully through his circumstances, and, and we're taking a couple of weeks now, I was just trying to fit it all in last week, couldn't do it, so we're going to take a couple of weeks just to kind of figure out, Paul, how'd you do it? How did you do it? How, what can we learn from this? So last week, I'll put it on the screen for you, but here was our first point, Paul maintained a Christ-centered perspective. He maintained a Christ-centered perspective. As we started the epistle, as we started chapter 3 of, of Ephesians, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and then he goes on, finishes his thought in verse 14, totally Paul's style. He starts talking, goes off on a tangent over here, and then he comes back and finishes his point, and he finishes the point in verse 14 to say, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying here, he says, look, for the cause of Christ I bow my knees even if it means that I sit here in jail. And that's the idea here that he starts off. For this reason, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says, no, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And what we looked at last week was we're looking at, hey, Paul maintaining a Christ-centered perspective. We looked at this idea that, man, God works sovereignly in the affairs of of mankind. That, That God has a sovereign will that he will providentially accomplish. And he's going to providentially accomplish his sovereign will, uh, either with us or without us. You know, whether or not it's going to be through our obedience, whether it's going to be through our disobedience, or I I should more accurately say in spite of our disobedience, or, or maybe it has nothing to do with our obedience or our disobedience. It's just a matter of the fact that God is going to accomplish his sovereign will. And, and we looked at several examples of that. that. That Paul gives us an example here. That, hey, listen, I'm in, in prison because of Christ. Because I'm doing exactly what God told me to do. And this was the thanks that I got. I got thrown in prison. And, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at Christ. I'm not going to look at my circumstances. I'm going to take strength in the fact that, look, I'm in prison because God told me to do something. And I did it. And this is the result And so therefore, I can conclude A plus B equals C. God wanted me to do this. God knew I would be here. I'm in the center of his will. It's so encouraging for us because some of us, we get into a position where we're thinking, my circumstances are horrible, and God, what on earth are you doing? And and what did I do wrong? Well, sometimes you didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes it's a matter of you've been obedient, and this is where God has you, and he's ordained you to be here where you're at, to honor him. Hey, Lord... I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
not a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner of my circumstances. We looked at the idea, sometimes God sovereignly works through disobedience. Paul, here in, in, in Ephesians 3, is a great example of obediently, uh, but being you know, where you are because of your circumstances. We looked at Jonah. Jonah's a great example of a guy who got where he was through disobedience. God told him, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah said no, got on a ship, go in the opposite direction, and God basically put him through circumstances. The storm rises up, everybody's freaking out. Who's in Dutch with God? Jonah's, it's me, I'm disobeying God, throw me over, you guys will be fine, that's what they do. He winds up in the belly of a great fish, uh, and, uh, you know, that so often is a great, metaphorically, a picture for us. I'm in a dark, stinky place, and I don't know what's going on, but I do know I got here through disobedience. It's dark, it stinks, and it's very uncertain. Well, no, it's exactly certain because that fish, we don't realize it, is taking us right where God wants us to go. Throws Jonah up. He goes up on the beach. Where am I? Oh, welcome to Nineveh. You know, oh, this is where I'm at. God gets you where he wants you to be. And so sometimes God sovereignly works through obedience. Sometimes God sovereignly works through disobedience. Sometimes he just sovereignly works. We looked at that again last week, John chapter 9. You know, here's this guy, <clears throat> he's a blind man, and the disciples are going, hey, why is this guy blind, Lord? Did his father sin or did his mother sin? And Jesus says, neither of them sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, look, it, this doesn't have anything to do with this guy's obedience. It doesn't have anything to do with his disobedience, with the obedience or disobedience of his parents. It's just so that I can manifest myself, my power, do my work in and through his life, and people will see me, and I can be manifested through his life. Well, take a walk with that, man. I mean, it's entirely possible this guy was blind for the express sole purpose of God manifesting himself so that people will see God through his life. Wow. See, God is, is going to sovereignly do his work, providentially do his work. Again, J. Vernon McGee says, providence is, a, is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. And so what happens is we see, man, throughout it all, Paul was able to maintain a Christ-centered perspective, not let his circumstances get him all riled up, but rather be able to keep his eyes focused on the Lord. And what that helped him to do was when he was in the midst of adversity, it didn't rock his world. You know, bummer, I'm in prison, but I'm here because this is where Jesus Christ has put me. And so... Number one, for Paul to be able to live through life's circumstances and faithfully honor God, he maintained a Christ-centered perspective. Leads us to our second point uh, today, and that is this, that Paul maintained a grace-centered posture. He maintained a grace-centered posture. Look at verse 8. Um, you know, we'll read it in context, okay, just to, to travel along. Chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And, and then he goes a little bit on a tangent, but it's really, it's, it's still keeping with his purpose. Hey, if indeed you've heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery uh, as I have briefly, briefly written about. He alluded to that back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. 
talking about the grace of God that was given to him, he says, verse 4, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And here's, here's the, the, the great mystery that was, was revealed to him, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This was the mystery, the message that God had given to Paul. This was the, the mandate that Paul had was to take this message out into the world. And this was the message that got him beaten, that got him stoned, that got him thrown into prison, that had him in perils often, and, and so on and so forth. He was being faithful to present a very unpopular message because God had given it to him. Man, I could go off on a tangent on that. That we as Christians, so often what we have to do, and what we've been called to do, is unpopular in the world's eyes. And we have to answer the question moment by moment and day by day, and more so as the days get more and more wicked. I mean, this world is not the world I grew up in. It's changed. It's scary how much our world has changed just in the last five years. How antichrist it's gotten, how openly hostile to the things of God this world has become. And so we have every moment of every, every waking moment of every day, we have the, to make the decision. Am I going to honor God? Am I going to obey God? Am I going to say what he wants me to say? Or am I going to say what's popular for the people to hear? And so Paul says, hey, here's the message. That the Gentiles should be the fellow heirs of the same body, the partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Listen, big idea going into all this. All of us are ministers and ambassadors of Christ. Okay? Every last one of us. And, and, and you, your commanding officer called you. He called you in a very unique calling. He called you in a very unique fashion. He placed you very specifically, very purposefully, to know him and to serve him. And, and so this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, I've been preaching a very unpopular message, but nevertheless, this is the message that God has given to me to, to, to preach. And I've become a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power, and here's what he goes on to say, verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Listen, Paul maintained a grace-centered posture. Now you'll see that phrase, I'm less than all the saints. That's what Paul says, I'm less than all the saints. Now, this is what's known as a comparative superlative, okay? And, and this is where two things are compared and contrasted. And, uh, and Paul spoke often in these terms. If you, if you look at 1 Corinthians, I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, a comparative superlative. Now, it's not about comparing ourselves or measuring ourselves with others. That's not the idea. Here's the idea. It's about magnifying God. 
So you're not married. Paul's not measuring himself with others to say they're better than me and I'm worse than them. That's, that's not the idea here. What it is, is it, it's, a, it's a magnifying of God. And it's, it's basically saying, how amazing is God's grace that he can even use me? That's what Paul's saying. How amazing is God's grace that he would use me? I, um, I was talking a couple of months ago to a guy. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, he's... Um, He used, to, uh, he used to cook methamphetamine. And he didn't just, you know, this, I mean, this was, this was breaking bad kind of stuff, the stuff that he was doing. I mean, he used to, he, he hired a DuPont chemist to perfect his recipe so that he could produce the best methamphetamine that, that was available. And it, and it was so pure that, that one of the leading biker gangs came to him as their chief supplier of their methamphetamine. The methamphetamine. This guy was a bad dude hanging out with a bad crowd, and, and his, uh, his entire life is, is pretty seedy, pretty ugly testimony. The guy today is a pastor. He pastors a church, and not just as a pastor of church, he has, he's active in the mission field, has, has you know, over a dozen churches that, that he personally has, has planted and, and so on in the mission field. I means very actively serving the Lord. It's, it's an amazing thing what has happened. And, and when I read about you know, what Paul is saying, I, I look at this guy, I think, man, he would have fit right in with Paul. Uh, you know, this, this guy... You know, by the world's standards, it's like, how dare you? Are you kidding me? You don't deserve to, to handle something so pure and so holy after your life was, was so rotten and so disgustingly horrible. And yet, this is, this is what God does. And, 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 and think about Paul's words to Timothy. He, said, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. See, Paul was shocked that he was given such grace to serve after all of his failures, after all of his failings. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, this is one of the arguments that I hear quite frequently from people. When, when I share the gospel and I'll approach an unbeliever and I'll, I'll start telling them about the love and the grace of God. And maybe you're here today and that's you. You've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and so, you know, you don't know if you were, you know, if you got hit by a bus on the way home from church say, and, and, and died. You don't know if you'd go to heaven or hell. You don't know. You don't have the assurance of knowing, hey, my life is hidden in Christ Jesus. And when I talk to people that that are in that place, maybe you're in that place today, when I talk to people in that position, frequently the argument that I'll hear from them is, you know, it's a matter of saying, man, I've done too much to be forgiven by God. I've done too much. You don't know me. I mean, you know, it's, if if I... (laughs) If I go to church, I'm going to get hit by lightning, man. I mean, I'm that guy. I'm that gal. My life, I've just done too much. And my response to that is, is to say, and in light of what we're reading, I'm like, more than Paul? 
You're telling me you've, you've done more than the Apostle Paul? I mean, here's a guy. He used to kill Christians. If you read through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7, there's this sweetheart of a guy named Stephen. And, and he is, is a servant of God. I mean, he's serving, waiting on tables for, for widows to help them, bringing them food and stuff. I mean, a really, really nice guy here. And this guy, he gets an opportunity to preach the gospel to these religious types, and he goes for it, man, preaches this incredible message, and they're totally convicted, cut to the heart, and they killed him for it. And so what happens there, as you read in Acts chapter 7, it says that they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and it says, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul's the name that Paul used to go by. You know, this was before uh, the Lord radically got a hold of his life. And so what, what it means there when it says that they laid their clothes at his feet, this is symbolic, it, and it, it's just part of the practice there. And what it means is that he stood there as the supervisor of the operation. And so he presided over the, the stoning killing of this, of this kid, Stephen. And, and then we go on to read in the book of Acts about how he would get letters to throw everybody in prison and to persecute Christians. And Stephen wasn't the only Christian that he killed. <clears throat> Paul was, was a murderer. He was a scoundrel. He did horrible things. Jesus told a parable in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18. And basically he said, you know, in, a parable is, a, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so Jesus said, hey, let me tell you about these two guys. You got a, you got a, a Pharisee who's a religious leader, and, and you've got a tax collector who, who was despised, seen as the lowest of low in society. Everybody hated the tax collector. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. And so, and so the, Jesus says, there's these two guys, man. You got, you got the, the, the religious guy, and you got the scoundrel, and they both go up to pray. And uh, the religious guy, he goes off. He's like, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, I, I tithe uh, regularly and I fast twice a week. And, 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 and that's kind of his approach to prayer. He says the tax collector, he won't even come up. He just, he just beats his breast. He bows his head. He, he kind of keeps a distance. And his prayer is, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says to them, <clears throat> which, he says, I, I, I tell you, <clears throat> this man, speaking of the man that beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And see, what happened in the life of Peter, Peter, man, this story, this parable that Jesus tells, or Paul rather, Paul is a perfect description of who that guy used to be or who that guy, of who that guy is in that, in that parable. That, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like other men. That's a great picture of the Apostle Paul. But, but you know, it's also kind of a good picture of who, who Paul would become. I, I guess I'd say it this way. It's a great picture of Saul, but it also serves as a picture of Paul when he was transformed. Because what happens is that Paul becomes this humble man to where now, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, look, I'm less than the least of the saints. And God lavished out his grace upon me. I don't deserve this. I don't have nothing coming. 
I deserve death and I deserve hell and I deserve judgment because I have done some horrible things. But God is so good. His grace is so astounding. Man, I just, I'm blown away by it. Now, Something else that I've discovered as a pastor, not only have I discovered that when you talk to, to a non-believer, oftentimes they're like, man, I've done too much, you don't know what I've done kind of thing, and you meet with that kind of resistance. But as a pastor, I'll tell you some, another type of resistance that I meet with, and this one strikes a little closer to home, and, and that resistance is where, well, sometimes the same thing that keeps people from receiving Jesus Christ in the first place, it's the same thing that keeps them from returning to Christ when they've sinned. See, we come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We believe and, and come to that place. And the majority of you here are in, are in this category where you come to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You identify with the man in Jesus' parable. And, and, oh, I'm saved, and that's awesome. And then what happens is as you begin living the Christian life, you get to the place where inevitably Satan trips you up. Your flesh trips you up. This corrupt world system trips you up. And, and whatever it is, and whichever one of that unholy trinity, the world and your flesh and Satan, whichever one it is, you in, in the course of your Christian life, you will sin against the Lord. Whether it's, whether it's, it, it's, it's a sin of, of commission, you, you actively knew this is what I'm doing, and you did it even though it was contrary to the will of God, or whether it's a sin of omission, hey, I should have done this, but I didn't do this, you will have that experience. You're saying that describes my drive to church this morning, Pastor Ted. I'm there. And what happens is, is that for many of us, we will get to the place to where we will sin against the Lord and we allow that sin and the guilt of that sin to keep us from turning to the Lord. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times it will drive us away from God. I think about Peter in, in, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus warned Peter in Matthew 26. He, he basically told Peter and all the disciples, look, I'm going to the cross and you all are going to abandon me. You're all going to desert me. And, uh, and Peter stands up. He answers. He says to him, Lord, even if we're all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. But as it turned out, <laughs> Jesus was right. Imagine that. And Peter did deny the Lord. And, and so if, if, as you read through the Gospels, and if you, you read through John's account, Basically, you come to John chapter 21, and what you discover there in John chapter 21 is that after denying Jesus Christ, it rocked Peter's world. And so you read this account in John chapter 21 where basically they're all sitting there and Peter announces, I'm going fishing. And, and the way that it's written, it seems to imply that what, what Peter was saying at that point in time, this is after Jesus has gone to the cross. This is after, after Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter, in this moment, he says, I'm going back to my old way of life. I quit. I give up. And the way the story unfolds, we know exactly what's going on in Peter's head and in his heart. I denied the Lord. said I'd never do that. I denied the Lord. So you know what? I, it's over for me. I'm done. 
And so what happens there is that Peter goes and, and, he, and he denies, you know, this, this call that God had on his life. He says, I'm going, I'm going back fishing. I, I'm out. And then we see what happens is as the story unfolds, that the disciples that are with him, they all go, oh, we'll go with you. Again, all material, we could, we could preach a whole other message on that. Just the influence that you have as Christians and how you can influence people for good or you can influence people to sin. And we have to be very careful how we walk. We have to be very mindful of, of the fact that we do influence people every single day. More is caught than taught. You parents, you fathers, hello, take a walk with that. But Peter says, I'm going fishing. And these guys, oh, yeah, we'll go with you. And so they go out and they fish and they fish all night and they catch nothing. And Peter wasn't, wasn't a very good fisherman, apparently, because this isn't the first time he's gone out and fished all night and caught nothing. As a matter of fact, when Jesus called Peter into ministry in Luke chapter 5, he'd fished all night and caught nothing. And so there he was, he fishes all night, he catches nothing. And, uh, and then what happens is the, the sun starts to rise because they fish at night. And there on the shore is Jesus Christ, and he's made this, this fire, and he, and, and he calls out, and as the story unfolds, you come to find out he's got fish and, and bread there on the, the stove, there on the fire. He calls out, he says, hey, you guys catch anything? They're like, no. You know, and you know it's bad when a fisherman doesn't lie. Well, we had some great bites, you know. And so, no, they didn't even, they're, no, we didn't catch anything. He goes, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, and you'll, you'll catch some fish. So they go, and they, they catch this overwhelming amount of fish. And John, at that point, he goes, it's the Lord. And Peter hears this. He takes off, you know, or he puts on his, his, his coat. He dives into the water. He swims, you know, to the shore there. And um, he finds Jesus. And Jesus has the fish there cooking. He's got the bread there. I mean, these guys were just going after fish. And in Jesus Christ, they find not just fish, but they find it cooked and prepared, and they find bread. I mean, you know, again, just a, a whole sermon there. I'm going off, off of my own thing, doing my own pursuits, trying to provide for myself, and in Jesus Christ, everything I ever wanted and more is available to me. That's not the, that's not the main point. The point is this. Peter says, I, I denied the Lord. It's over for me. I'm going back to fishing. Jesus says, Peter, come back. And what ends up happening is he, is he provides the food for him, and then Jesus turns to Peter, and he, he begins to restore Peter. Peter denied him three times. Three times Jesus asks him the question, hey, Peter, do you love me? And so, you know, the first time, hey, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter, you know, who previous had said, Lord, I, even though everybody else denies you, I'll never deny you, makes all these, these bold, confident claims. And now Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter, he's faced now face to face with, am I going to make a bold, confident claim? Or am I going to be honest? Am I going to just, okay, Lord, I'm going to meet you right where I'm at, right where you're at, here I am. And so what he says is, Lord, you know, that I love you, I phileo you. It's a brotherly love. It's, a, it's, a, it's an affectionate love, but it's not an unconditional love. And Peter had just experienced through his own failings. Man, there's limitations to where I'm at. I wish I was there, agape, I'm not. I'm, I'm phileo. I love you with some conditions, Lord. I, that's just... I hate that that about me, but that's where I'm at. That's the truth of where I'm at. 
And the Lord says, feed my, feed my sheep. And he says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. I'm going to be straight with you. Jesus says, tend my sheep. Third time, Peter, you phileo me? Peter was grieved, it says, the third time because Jesus said, do you phileo me? In other words, Jesus started off, hey, you love me unconditionally? No. You love me unconditionally? No. Do you love me at this level? Do you you love me with conditions, with some failings, with some faults, with some insecurities? Is Is that where we're at in our relationship here? And Peter is grieved because he's like, yeah, that's the truth. That's it. I mean, I, I wish I could say that I love you unconditionally. But man, this is, this is where I'm at. And Jesus' response there. He says, get out of my sight. I'm done with you. No, that's not what he says at all. He says, feed my sheep. Huge lesson there for us, guys. Jesus loved Peter, and he, and he chased him, and he met him where he was at, and he says, listen, man, you've, you, I'm going to just get you in the boat. I'll clean you up once I get you in the boat, Peter. Well, let me just reinstate you here. Let me work on you. And, and, and here's, here's, what I, here's what I want you to see. Before Peter ever fell, so I shared with you from Matthew's gospel when Jesus warned his disciples, hey, the, you know, you, you guys are going to deny me. In, in Luke's gospel, when, when he tells the story that, you know, of Jesus warning them that they're going to deny them, he, he also includes this, which isn't included in, in Matthew's gospel. Here's what Jesus warned him ahead of time, before he ever denied him. Here's what Jesus warned him. He said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Did you catch that? Listen, Jesus not only knew that Peter was going to deny him in the future, but he he prayed and he planned for him. He prayed and he planned for him. See, Jesus already knows what you're going to do. And maybe today you're in a place where you, like Peter, have said, it's over for me. I I let the Lord down. I have this sin in my life. I feel ashamed. I feel horrible. And now I'm just, maybe I can just sort of have this mediocre, secondhand, kind of reduced sort of relationship with God because I've let him down and I've sinned in so many ways. And, and what I would tell you is that Jesus already knows what you're going to do. And he's praying for you right this moment. I can prove it. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It, it, Paul asks this, he says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And that's written, that makes intercession, it's written in the active tense. And the idea is that it's ongoing. Right now, this moment, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's praying for you by name. And you may be thinking, man, I've let the Lord down and I've failed him. And the Lord would say, I'm not surprised. 
I know you. Hey, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. What a scary proposition. I'd probably pee my pants right there. Hey, Satan has asked for you. <laughs> ah! <laughs> hey, it's cool. I prayed for you. And, and, no, and, and this is what I want you to see. Jesus knows Peter's going to deny him. And, and what he says, I prayed for you. And here's what else he says. I got a plan for you. When you return, strengthen your brethren. God, I want you guys to see this. Man, I want you to see it. Because not only did Jesus pray and he planned for Peter's return, then Jesus paid for, Jesus, for, for Peter's sin on the cross. And then not only that, but he pursued Peter and he ran after Peter after Peter ran away. There at the end of John's gospel, he pursues him. And then he puts him back into service. Hey, Peter, go tend and feed my sheep. And the point, guys, is this, and you can't miss it. Everyone has past. Everyone's got sins in their closet that they're ashamed of. Everyone has failed the Lord, has, has let the Lord down, is ashamed, and has regret. And Peter got stuck in his past failings, and he quit. And I want you to see this, guys. What I see, there's typically two extremes. We have a tendency to live in the extremes. We don't live in the middle very often. We, we have a tendency to, to polarize to the extremes. And there's two extremes. We either sugarcoat our past or we get stuck in our past. Okay? And so, you know, again, I, I told you about the, the example, the, 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 the parable that Jesus told about the two guys that go up to pray. Well, that Pharisee in that in that parable, that's an example of a guy who sugarcoats his past. He loses sight of the fact that he was once a sinner saved by grace in desperate need of the cleansing touch of God. And now he's in this religious place of perceived superiority over everybody because, you know, I've, I've I've done all this stuff. Hey, what he, what he lost sight of? He lost sight of the fact that God, you were a piece of work when God got a hold of you, man. God's done a lot of work in your life, and now you're going to be proud and boast about it like it's you that, that did this work? And so we can live on that side of the extreme, or we can, that's the sugarcoating of our past, or we can get the other extreme, man, we get stuck in our past. And we're like, oh, I've done this, I've done that, and now it's over for me, and it's done And what Paul is saying here, ironically, he's talking to Jew and Gentile. They're divided. There's all kinds of problem there. And and Paul is saying, I was just as lost as the Gentiles. I I mean, I'm, man, I'm, I'm less than the least of all the saints. And you guys are all, you know, the, the Jew, the Gentile, and we, you know, we're apart and we can't be together and you're fighting me, you've thrown me in prison because, you know, God has, has come to save the Gentile and the Jew and everybody freaks out about that. Can I just tell you, we're all a piece of work, man. We're all a piece of work. So Paul doesn't sugarcoat his past. He doesn't get stuck in it. He simply maintains a wonderful balance of grace that saves and sustains Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
See, Paul didn't see himself as a failure, but as a vessel of grace to bring the message of grace. This is the way Paul viewed himself. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm the least of all the saints. Nevertheless, it's this grace given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The salvation is for the Jew and it's also for the Gentile. That we're one body, one family. We both have access and confidence to come boldly before the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 6 says this. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you are in the place today where, you know, you once walked with the Lord and, and you're convicted. You've, you've fallen for the enemy's tricks. And it's caused you to, to be in a place where you feel like it's never going to be the same between you and God. There's a story that's told in Joshua chapter 9. It's, uh, it's really an interesting story where you have the... The Jews make this treaty with the Gibeonites. They weren't supposed to. See, God had commanded them to destroy all of their enemies. And, and it, it sounds extreme, but basically it's, it's symbolic that we're not to have any sort of compromise with sin. And so, basically, we're supposed to destroy the sin in our life. And what happened was the Jews got tricked. Because the, the Gibeonites, they saw all the destruction that was happening. They saw what, what the Jews did to Jericho. And they, they saw what the Jews did to Ai. And how they utterly destroyed all of their enemies. The way God had called them to do. And so what happened was the Gibeonites, they, they don't want to be destroyed. And so they tricked the Jews. They went and they got this, this moldy bread. And they got the, these old wineskins. And, and they did this because they wanted, to, again, to trick the Jews to tell them, hey, listen, we're, we're not your nearby neighbor. We came from a, from a faraway place. These are not the droids you're looking for, you know, kind of thing. And so, so they, they get these, the moldy bread and the, and the, and the, the wineskins, and, they, and they, they come, you know, approaching the, the Jews, and they're like, hey, we're, we're not from around here. And so the, Joshua didn't pray about it. The Jews didn't pray about it. They're just like, oh, you're not from around here. Okay, well, let's enter into a treaty with you. Well, after it was too late, Joshua realized the mistake that he made. He's like, oh, I trick, I, they tricked me. Well, now he's made a treaty with them. He can't break this treaty that he's made with them. What did Joshua do? What Joshua did is he put the Gibeonites in charge of, of bringing the wood and bringing the water to the congregation. You're like, so what's that mean? Listen. Joshua basically says, look, I can't change what I did in the past. I can't change this mistake that I made. I can't change the fact that, that, that my enemy tricked me and I fell for it. I can't change that. But going forward, hey, I can use my failings to fuel my worship. I can use my failings to drive me to, to drink deep the water. There in the place of, of, of worship. Listen, your failings today, they, they, can, they can either get you in a place where you quit, where you give up, where you run, or they can be those things that drive you to fuel your worship, to, to fuel you digging deep and drinking deep of the water of the Word of God. 
And so this is what Paul says. He's like, man, God's doing this incredible work. I can't believe that he uses me. I'm not going to get in this place where I think too much of, of myself or I think too much of my sin. I'm just going to be in this place of, I'm a child of God by grace. And you, Gentile, you're also children of God by grace. And so Paul says, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Jew, Gentile, God wants to make you his family. Not only making you his family, wants to give you his name. We, we bear the name of Christ. We are Christians. This is the, the blessing that God, by his grace, has given to us. He says, Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the, inter, in the inner man. God says, I'm rich, you're my kid, and I want to bless you abundantly and strengthen you in the inner man. All of the riches of Christ are available to you and to me. That, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, and depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hey, you're going to know the love of God that unconditionally he's received you, he's accepted you, he's adopted you into his family. You don't need to be divided from everyone else. You don't need to think more highly of yourself. Than you ought to. You don't need to think more lowly of yourself because you're a sinner and, and you don't, you're not worthy of all this stuff. God, by his grace, he's answered both. And you can, be a, a, you can have this love. Verse 20, now to him, Paul concludes this prayer, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Think about the things that you've thought about from, from God or, or you know, in, in, a, in a longing way or that you've asked God for? I mean, you know, God, please, let me just win the lottery. You know, God, please, if I could just have this. A lot of times, you know, we go to God, we sell ourselves short on our prayers. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes I know people, they're like, I'm praying for God to bless me financially and I'm praying for God to give me this, I'm, you know, whatever it is. You meet people with great faith. I always like to ask them to pray for me, you know? But here what Paul is saying is he's, he's able to do above, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. I can ask and think for a lot. And he's saying, man, God, man, he, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above everything that you can ask or think. How? According to the power that works within us. And he concludes, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, I close with this. The Apostle John said, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We are the abundant recipients of the, of the overwhelming grace of God. And maybe the enemy has you down. Maybe he has you defeated today. You need to be strengthened in the grace of God. You need to, to, to view yourself like Peter. Lord, I've let you down. Okay, you love me? Because I'm going to give you another chance. Lord, I, I, I just feel horrible because I just keep doing... I mean, how many times, Lord, I just keep doing this thing? How often should I forgive my brother, Lord? Seven times? 
What did Jesus say? 70 times 7. It's a picture of his overwhelming, abundant love for us, his grace available to us, his forgiveness available to us. There's a beautiful story that's told of an event that happened back in the 30s. Mayor LaGuardia, he was a character, and he liked to go around. He'd show up at the fire stations, and he'd go riding on calls with the firemen, or he'd bring kids from the orphanage to baseball games or all sorts of different stuff. And every once in a while, he used to like to wander into the night court and sit on the bench and give the, the, the judge the night off. He's just a benevolent guy that way. So one night he shows up, he gives the judge the night off, and he starts, you know, seeing and handling all the cases for night court that are coming in. Well, they, they drag in this little old lady. She got, stealing, she got caught stealing a loaf of bread. And, uh, and so, you know, obviously she's no criminal. And she's weeping, crying. She basically, you know, saying, I, I, my kids, my grandchildren are now living with me. And, and I'm just, I stole the bread because we have no money and they're, they're starving. And, uh, and he, he believes with all of his heart. I mean, she's, the lady's telling the truth and the shopkeeper's there and he's looking at the shopkeeper. He's like, I know, I know, but I keep getting ripped off. It's got to stop somewhere. People keep stealing from me. I'm, I'm not going to withdraw the charges. I'm pressing the charges. And Mayor LaGuardia says to, to the guy, he says, you know, um, the charges are that not only does she have to pay back the bread, but she has to pay a hefty fine. And then she's also, you know, she, she, and if she can't pay the hefty fine, she has to sit 10 days in jail. And then with this, the, the, the grandmother's just crying even more. She's like, what will happen to my babies, my grandbabies? Nobody will take care of them. I can't be in jail for 10 days. And so he, he says, madam, I, I have no choice. And he takes the gavel and he drops it down on the, on the bench there on the, thing, on the desk. And, the, and he says, uh, the penalty is that you, uh, you, have to pay, you have to pay this $10 fine or you've got to do 10 days in jail. That's the, that's the penalty. That's the sentence. I've just passed it. And then as soon as the gavel hit, he reached into his wallet and he took out $10 and he put it down and he said, I'm going to pay the fine. And then he said, furthermore, I'm going to charge every single person in this courtroom. I'm going to fine you all 50 cents apiece for living in a town where a grandmother has to steal a loaf of bread to feed her grandchildren. And the, the hat went around and everybody had to put in 50 cents. And then it finally came, the hat overflowing with money, comes to this red-faced shopkeeper who reaches into his pocket and puts in 50 cents. And not only did everybody pay the fine, but they also, as they presented the fine to this little grandmother, they all gave her a standing ovation. Now that, true story, is a picture of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We're guilty. There's no doubt about it. But God the Father, in the person of the work of Jesus Christ, he paid the fine. And over and above paying the fine, he blesses you on top of that. He gives to us grace. He gives to us mercy. And he gives to you today the privilege of being called his child. And no matter where you, what you've done, no matter what you've become today, you can cry out and receive the grace and the mercy of Christ.